cliffcentral.com. Welcome to Future CEOs. My name is Gareth Armstrong. It's good to be with you. And today we have another, and I keep on saying this word over and over again every week, another interesting conversation. But this time it's more than just interesting. It's fascinating. And I'll get into who we're talking to in just a moment. But remember, if you can say, yes, I'm a future CEO, well, then this is the show for you. Welcome. It's good to be with you. The individual that I'm sitting across from here in a, a very, what, what do we call it? Is it plush? What do you think? I think plush is good. Plush office is no stranger to certainly the South African trend market, but then also the fashion industry. Dion, you've got a very interesting life and a very interesting history. Welcome to Future CEOs. Maybe if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself to those who may never have heard of you, but those are few and far between. Right. So, hi, everyone. My name is Dion Chang. I'm the founder of a trends analysis company called Flux Trends. I've been running this company for the past uh, 10 years, but before that, some other people might know from another career incarnation, which was in the fashion magazine realm. Um, so I've spent many, many years uh, sort of honing my skills in magazines and started to write uh, from there. And it's been, as you say, a very interesting journey of how things have progressed. But I think uh, a lot of people point to my career as a, a case study in pivoting and rebranding and reinventing what you do. And, and that's so important, especially as you see the trends and what the trends are telling us about the future of work. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think to the, uh, most of the business that we do at, at Flux Trends. So, so we, to explain to everybody, uh, we're a slightly unusual, um, research company. So about five years, again, that word, I pivoted the, the business and just redirected the trajectory. So the, the current mantra for the, the company is trends as business strategy. So we look at, we take trends, which always, fitted in just the consumer behavioral space, but we've actually planted it into the corporate world because there's so much disruption going on. So we actually use pop culture trends, technology trends, uh, looking at the future of work, new skills, all of that kind of thing to kind of steer and advise business and business leaders. Let me ask you a question, an interesting question perhaps. Are you ever scared of what you find and what you see? Good question. Um, no. So I embrace, I embrace change, uh, and, and not surprisingly because my, my, my career has been chopping and changing all the time. So I'm, I'm very used to it. But I think the, the, the role, especially of a futurist or a trend spotter is you've got to just observe the stuff. So on my, on my business card, it actually doesn't say CEO or doesn't say founder. It actually just says observer. And, and I think you've got to be completely objective or distance yourself because it is what it is. So you can't actually put on any emotional stuff or moral judgment or anything. So for example, the, 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 the ongoing question I get is, so with the fourth industrial revolution, what's going to happen to our jobs? I get from parents, what's going to happen to our kids? Cause we're losing tactility and humanity with, with that. Um, so you've got to just say, well, it is coming. So how do we deal with it rather than say, this is not going to happen. And especially, you know, I've just come from a, a lecture at, at a, at a private college for the management, uh, for the teachers, for Gen Z specifically. And I said to them again, just this morning, I said, just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. You know, the teenagers that you, you are dealing with, they are born into a technology. They know nothing else. So it's a completely different world from you. So just because their perspective is different, it doesn't mean it's wrong. So you've got to kind of take those approaches. The one interesting thing is that I've always learned uh, over the past 10 years, in terms of trends and in terms of future trends, we've got this policy in the office is don't be two hours ahead of the curve. 
be 20 minutes ahead of the curve because when I started out, I lurched forward and I was two hours ahead of the curve and you tend to scare the horses uh, with two hours ahead of the curve. So if you bring it 20 minutes ahead of the curve, even though you know that something's going to happen two hours ahead of the curve, it makes it more palatable and more digestible for people to actually say, okay, we get it and it's coming and it's closer. I like that. I like that lesson. So even if you know, even if you can see it, Pull it back, make it digestible. Hold back, yes. No, Hold no, back. very, very nice. And the reason I asked that question is because I was with you at an event, your event down in Cape Town. Yes. It was fantastic. It was insightful, but it left me a little bit shaken because the future of work, the future of, of management, the future of leadership, there's some scary stuff there, isn't there? Sure. Or always, potentially scary. I guess you can't say. <laughs> no, I do. It's, uh, so, so there's, there's, there's two reactions. So I, I do a lot of public speaking. I, I'm, I'm generally the open opening keynote of a, of a conference. Um, I get invited a lot, which is what I enjoy because that's where you can implement the most change to actually speak to just excos or, mm. or CEO level. And that's really valuable. It's so important um, for them. Yes. But in a big conference, I always say to people, you know, uh, the short answer of what do I do? Because everyone says, what does the futurist do? What, what, do you, what do you do? And I said, the short answer is I make you think differently. Mm. And there's two reactions to especially a presentation that's got a lot of tech in it and future tech. Um, I said, you will either be really excited by the end of this or really terrified. Mm. Um, but either emotion is good because it means you've shifted your thinking. And that's, for me, the most valuable thing. If you can get people to just think differently, then you've accomplished a lot. Mm. Let's park that for a moment. Okay. Let's go to you. Tell us about your journey. Tell us about your experience. You started in one place. You've ended somewhere else, not too far away, actually. If you look no, at, they are parallels. Yes, yes, exactly. Just, just talk us through the journey. Where did you grow up? Okay, how I, did this all come um, about? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a third generation SABC, <laughs> meaning okay. South African-born Chinese. Uh, it's a small, it's a small uh, locally-born uh, Chinese population. I grew up in the dazzling cosmopolitan of Pretoria. <laughs> 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 in the in the seventies and, and into the eighties, so that was a rather interesting uh, experience of how to mould a personality yeah. um, in one of the most then uh, Calvinistic hotspots in South Africa, in the old South Africa. I then got out of there as soon as possible after my trick. Uh, I I thought I wanted to become a fashion designer, so I studied uh, in Durban, so I moved around there. So that started a little bit of a pattern in my life because I got a scholarship after that, and then I moved to Paris. All right. Um, so I went for postgrad studies in Paris, ended up living for there for two years, moved to London for about two years. I was going to actually completely settle in London and came back to South Africa to wait for my working papers to clear. And by then I was, I was, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be a designer, but I started styling and I had the, I dabbled as a makeup artist. I dabbled in a lot of things. And eventually I, f- I was offered a job in Joburg on a small teenage publication. Okay. And it was a huge decision to say, do I go back to London or do I take this opportunity? So it was one of those, fork in the road kind of decisions that you have to do. And I decided that there was uh, not a very quick turnover in magazines. So let mm. me stay and get that experience. It was a good decision because it led me to uh, actually work through almost all variants of publications in South Africa. So from my first mainstream uh, one was with Roy Rosa for, for five years. Okay, um, That was an interesting lesson in branding and speaking to a specific audience. Very specific. There, audience. Very, very specific. Mm. To 
True Love, I worked for Cosmopolitan. Um, I then the longest tenure was uh, with the launch team for Elle magazine. Okay. So yes. um, and that's where uh, I stayed the longest, and actually my writing career started um, at Elle magazine with uh, with great editors who encouraged me to write because uh, I'd never taken a journalism course. So okay, let me quickly stop you there because there are some questions that have come to mind as you've been speaking. One of them is how did you come to the decision that you wanted to be a fashion designer, and then in this journey you realized that actually it wasn't for you how did that happen give us a couple of stories maybe okay. a, a moment um, or two that yeah you I, I always said you know to people that uh, I was possibly a bit of a freak of nature because around about standard seven I had quite a clear idea that I wanted to to enter the design world so well, how why for, it was just something that I, I, I knew that I wanted to do. Mm. Um, and, and it was uh, reaffirmed because I entered a national design competition with no design experience okay. in matric and lo and behold got into the finals. Oh, wow. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. So I think it, it gave my parents a little bit of a courage to say, okay, well, if you want to do this, then, then follow your dreams. But they've never, they've never been parents that have discouraged anything. They mm. said, if this is what you want to do, we'll support you 100%, which is uh, one of the, the best things you can have mm. in terms of your formative years. And then I think it was just trying to do some, you know, private clients and, and things where I just thought this is not really <laughs> what I want to do. Yeah. And I think specifically in when I was at, uh, doing postgrad studies at a couture college in, in Paris, which by the way, all the lessons were in French. Oh, wow. So yeah. that was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. I just, I, that's, that's where I switched courses and I actually applied because I was on a scholarship and I said, please, can I change the course? This is not uh, really, um, and to its credit, I, did my training in South Africa at Natal, what was then called Natal Technicon. Mm. And uh, what I'd mostly done in my three years there, I wasn't really learning that much in Paris. So it was a, you know, as good uh, heads up for the course in, in Durban. And that's where I decided to switch to kind of styling, sort of makeup uh, thing. So, so that sort of brought me into the trajectory of the glossy magazine world. Mm. And that's how I entered the, the world. And I loved the magazine world. And that's taught me everything about journalism about media because after that once i left the the magazine world i worked for about five years with lucilla boyson at the embryonic stage of southern fashion week mm -hmm. so i worked uh, for five years as the program director but also the national spokesperson so understanding the media was a really good basis uh, for that but what I started realizing after, because I started Flux Trends uh, shortly after uh, working with Cycling Fashion Week, was from magazines, from being part of the launch team of Elle to I edited while I was there one of the first men's supplements. This mm -hmm. is before GQ or men's health came into the country. And then I started with, with Cycling Fashion Week. So everything that I'd, I'd been doing in my career was at a startup phase. Okay. So it occurred to me that I enjoyed the startup of things, being at the nascent stage of anything and being the first to, to explore and basically go where angels fear to tread. I'm fascinated by the parallels now between design, journalism, writing, media, a startup world. Please, let's draw some parallels and, and bring us all the way now to you as a trend analyst a futurist, but draw the parallels all the way through, please. So I think, you know, a lot of people have asked me the question, so how did you pivot or how did you, you do this rebranding? And I said, it wasn't, if you think about it, it wasn't that much of a leap of faith. So um, in terms of the trends and things, I, I, what occurred to me was what I enjoyed about the fashion world was not really handbags and shoes, mm. but the social movements that drove those trends. Okay. So why did we have punk? Mm. What brought on a Japanese 
deconstruction design movement, a Belgian conceptual design movement, all of those kind of things. That really, really interested me. Okay. So those sort of socio-political or economic things, that's what really, really interested me. And then with the magazine world is when I started writing and I found my, my groove or my metier, which was opinion pieces or columns. Mm. So, so it, it really, really helped me to hone what I was thinking and then put it out into a published world. So the result is I'm very, very blessed and I don't forget that and very privileged that I have incredible media platforms. Mm. So I write currently for Sabona on SAA. I write a business column for Acumen. I'm writing for different internal publications. I'm just about to start something for Prudential okay. and I write a, a trends column for, for City Press. So it's, a, it's, it's quite a wide bouquet. But they're all trends based and they're all business based. Mm. Um, so the, the media training, if you will, that I've got from, from magazines and understanding uh, and, and being a, a spokesperson as well. And just as an aside, I have the greatest respect for spin doctors and, oh, yes. and spokespeople, oh, yes. in, in, especially in government departments, because they've, you, you really got to, I've, I've, I know what it's like to face those bullets, mm. uh, to, to, to take those bullets as well. But, but it's all kind of converged into also understanding in the bio that we, we put out. I said, you know, the, the media studies or, or my, my career in media has, has completely laid a foundation for what I do now because I understand the the consumer market, I understand the business market and the, the retailers, but also the communication channels that bind them. Yep. So it's quite a holistic understanding of that of that world. And then you put it into the future trends, so you just sort of put it up one notch and it becomes a very, very interesting space to, to work in. So you've said something and it interests me because, of course, being in the digital online radio talk space – the communication channels that bind. Yes. There's some crazy breakdown of that or re-engineering of that at the moment. Just a thought or two, and then let's talk a little bit about what I've now learned from you back in Cape Town at that yeah. event. I think there's, for me, if I look at trends generically, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a, a pendulum swing. Mm. Something new comes on board. Everybody says this is the best thing since sliced bread. The pendulum swings to one extreme. Then... Kind of reality sets in a bit and, and the usage or the user experience of that starts either fragmenting or it goes back a little bit and then sometimes the, the pendulum swings completely the other way. So for mm. example, you know, Amazon destroying the, the sort of uh, book chains uh, with e-readers and then them opening up their own uh, bookstores because people still like tactility. So that kind yep. of thing. Yep. So it's just noticing where that pendulum is is swinging and where it kind of goes to. And I think with, with media channels is it was either – Online, offline, it's the same thing with retail, um, but now we're finding that there's a lot of little fragments in between, but essentially the common denominator is the content. So it doesn't matter which platform, or it does matter which platform, but whatever platform is best suited for that kind of content, it will go out. It just means that there's a, a fragmentation of those platforms and there's a lot more choice that people have. So your content had really be, better be good so that you can attract those people to buy into that, that specific platform. I guess what I also am seeing and experiencing is that in the past there were one or two ways to consume content. Yes. Now there are a plethora of different ways, but you really do have to be able to play and translate in all of those areas. That translation is tricky because one thing doesn't apply to another. And, and that's what it, that's 
the other part of the job I, I love doing. So different brands come to me and say, can you put together something that is on trend or a little bit trend forward? So within the South African fa- uh, Fashion Week space, I, I curated a, a, a talk series for Sunglass Hut. Mm. So they wanted uh, to, to have something a little bit more, more meaningful, a bit more meaty. And on that, we were discussing, I had the editor of Elle magazine, Emily, on, on there, and it was a pop-up debate, which I, which I facilitated with Trevor Sturman. Mm. Um, so the blogger, um, and uh, all-round good guy. And Emily said a really interesting thing about content because we said, what is the relevance of a magazine in the digital era? And we were talking about immediacy. We were talking about bloggers and Instagramming and visual platforms, all of those kind of things. And she just said it so beautifully. She said, I've come to realize that I am an editor of a content portal which Mm. just happens to have one arm that is a printed magazine. It's a channel. Yes. Mm. So she completely reinvented the role of an editor. So it's not a, I'm not the, the editor of a magazine. I'm an editor of a content portal, mm. which has many, many arms. And, and it depends how you slice that up and how you present it. So you've presented that very, very nicely. Present a couple of more trends that excite you. But maybe that also our future CEOs listeners yes. um, who are CEOs, who are on Exco, who are also starting their own businesses. So we've got this extreme. Yes. What do they need to hear from you? So most people would say that, um, you know, you look at trends, it, it is tech-based. So, yes, so tech is uh, the main driver of change. And it's, the, it's the, the great disruptor. disruptor. Yeah, yeah. It's the biggest, uh, the biggest disruptor. But therein lies the red herring, because I think a lot of people will go off, and, and if you look at, we're just about to release a whole report about financial services. And it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic case study because it, it illustrates what's happening. So financial services with banking in specific are running around looking for that innovative app, the, that, that, that silver bullet. And what we realized in the, in the packaging of this report is that your financial services sector is actually being eaten away very slowly but very steadily with small little fragments. Mm. Little pay gate here, a little method of doing this, all of those kind of things. Actually, the entire foundation is starting to, to dissolve, but we're still looking for that little silver bullet. So my thing that I'm, I'm really big on, and, and we've actually just created this innovation lab, and we, we're going to launch it at the end of uh, this month, and, and it's, it's exactly for, for CEOs because it's, everyone's looking for innovation, and I think every CEO is thinking, what can we do to do things differently? Mm. And this, my findings were very surprising because it's, it's about a three-year journey to put together this, this masterclass, and it looks at disruption. It looks at skills. So a lot of people understand that their industry is being disrupted, but then they don't question if they've got a changed skill set to meet the disruption. So you're using the same skill set. I say to people, you know, we're trying to get into a driverless car using an old manual from a stick shift car. Mm. So it it doesn't make sense. And then after going on this incredible innovation tour of of New York where I wanted to see what the the, the golden thread between, it was about 50 companies uh, across industries that that we, we all looked at on this tour, I came away with a very surprising Findings, and this is what my message to CEOs is actually the innovation should not be outsourced to an innovation hub. Okay. Um, it's got to be part of the company culture. And the fundamental thing that comes out in this, this masterclass is that basically you're standing on your biggest resource, which is the people, but the structures we use in business today are 20th century templates. Hmm. So if you think about a post-industrial age, factory factories with workers, corporations, the whole thing about pensions and health benefits and 40-hour work week, 9 to 5, all of those we still 
drag into the 21st century, mm. and they're actually not relevant anymore. Yeah. So you've got the gig economy, you've got uh, remote workers. We're sitting in this office, which is a, a transient office space, and that's exactly it. So what I challenge a lot of CEOs and executives is you've got to relook the ecosystem and the company culture because that's actually what's at fault. So uh, the people that, uh, especially the, the people that come from legacy companies, tell me very proudly, we have been around for 90 years. And I say, I wouldn't really shout that out too loud. Yeah. It means that you're siloed. It means that you're hierarchical. And you this lumbering behemoth that can't move. Yeah, this big so, structure that cannot yes. be lean, cannot be agile. So your new, your new agile companies are not legacy. They have lifespans about 15 years. It doesn't mean that they disappear. It means that they pivot all the time. So mm. they, they, they change things. So, so A, it's to look at that. But if I go back and you ask me if there's one thing I challenge CEOs to do is I say re-audit your brand and redefine your purpose. Mm. So a lot of people look at me a bit strange and say, but we know what our purpose is. We are an insurance company. We are a retail store. We do this. And I say, yes, but your technical disruption and digitization and the fact that you're not really selling a product in this day and age, you're selling a solution or mm. you're selling a service yep. means that fundamentally your purpose has changed. So it's always to go back and say, what is our purpose? And as, as nuanced as that little pivot is, you'll find, I, I guarantee you, 100% of the time, that that realignment of what your purpose is is going to put you on a completely different trajectory. Well, I think of the adage where you, at the beginning of a journey, if you change a plane's uh, direction by two or three degrees, at the end of that journey, yes. it's going to be far off. Completely yeah, different, yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and that's the thing I, I, I'm really passionate about, about purpose and re-auditing a brand because I think people have kind of, we, we, we stare at disruption like rabbits in a headlight and you're going, okay, this is coming, this is coming. You know, what do we do? And like I said, you don't interrogate your skill set. You don't look at things differently. And you try and patch the problem, but you don't dig deeper and say, okay, how do we actually change the entire organizational structure? And for me, that's, that's crucial to, uh, to, to pushing forward. So Elon Musk said something the other day, and he spoke about AI, the advent of it. Yes. But the, the scary outcomes that he is seeing and i mean he does if there's someone that looks into yes. the future it's him that's him and he's he's afraid of, and he uses very strong terms i forget some of them now but he's afraid of what the world is going to look like in 10 20 years time when ai begins to really and robots really take on jobs that we're supposed to be doing uh, what are your thoughts on this idea of AI yeah, robots? Look, you know, so so a yeah AI is it it's really a double edged sword because there's you know there's uh, what they call in deep machine learning all of these kind of things. I just wrote a, a, a column about uh, privacy because it's just come on the radar again with you know, American politics, but it's it's just a, an undercurrent that's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And essentially, we've almost reached that stage where you've kind of lost the battle already in terms mm. of privacy. It's mm. just you know you, you can't. Eliminated in, in, in a cyber trail or anything like that. So, where do you go? And the, the the biggest question that's been asked of me in the last eighteen months has exactly been that. So, what happens to our jobs when the machines take over? Mm -hmm. And I say the machines aren't rising; they have risen. Mm -hmm. And now we're learning the the language of the machines, which are chatbots, AI, uh, these IPAs, uh, intelligent personal assistants. That that is the next big wave of, of things are coming. 
And for me, there's the, there's a, a new term that's come onto my radar called the great displacement. Mm. And so you, you're looking at, yes, the, the, the robots and the algorithms are going to take jobs away, but they are going to displace those workers into a, a different service or solutions industry. So somebody asked me, if I were a venture capitalist and I hear all about all of these drones coming, should I invest in an aeronautics company? And I said, no. I would rather invest in a drone repair and maintenance exactly, company because yeah. that's the displacement and that's the new service industry. The problem is that to be displaced, you need technical skills because increasingly that service industry is going to be highly technical. So my advice, and again to, to CEOs, is relook your CSI policy because for me the the the, the new and uh, forward thinking CSI policy is not just outward looking yes you need to help communities outside and and you need to use your corporate profits to do that because also you want to attract uh, a younger workforce that believes that you have a value system and that they're doing uh, good but the other thing is so the the CSI is more internal it's mm. actually upskilling your workers constantly so that if and when they they do lose their jobs they have a fighting chance elsewhere to to be displaced so for me that's a it's a very different way of looking at csi and it's a new responsibility that ceos have to do it absolutely is a massive responsibility yeah. uh the one just a last thing with from elon he said that he believes that there is going to have to be introduced a universal a universal wage yes universal basic income I exactly thank you very much it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a big, big, big debate. So a lot of the Scandinavian countries are experimenting with that. India's already implemented in, in, in some ways. Um, uh, Switzerland, didn't they do, yeah. do something like yeah. that so, the other so day? European, Scandinavian, and, 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 and India specifically. In India, it's a, it's a real stipend. So it's, it, it differs from our social grants, the debacle that's happening now, because that is for the, the, the poorest of the poor and the, and the needy. So universal basic income is that everybody gets the safety net mm. so that you, you go there. So there's all of these debates. Well, if you get a universal income, will you not be motivated to, to get a job or work? So as we saw with the dole system in the, in the UK, you know, people just would live off the dole. Mm -hmm. But I think the, at the moment, the universal basic income is so small that it really is just a catchment that you've, you've got something to, to, that you don't starve mm. um, and that you hopefully get a, maybe a roof over your head or something like that. But it's just that, it's that safety net. It. The conversation around that is growing louder and louder and louder. And as the machines take over, it's just getting to be this roar of yeah. should we do this or should we not do this? So it's a, yeah, a very interesting world that we are moving into. So uh, again, I just have to remain completely neutral and say this is happening, this is happening and report and track the stuff and be that observer and, and just hope and, and hopefully give some advice or, or, or you know, steer some people in, in, in different directions. But I don't think we know where we're going at the moment. And that's a terrifying thing to say. At the event, you shared a or you, you made us watch a preview to a movie. And, and so let's just use this yes. as almost the crown of yes. our AI discussion. And then I'm going to ask you a couple more mm. questions about your journey just to close down yeah. the conversation. You made us watch a preview of a, essentially what is a thriller horror kind of yes. film about of, tech, yes. <laughs> about the robots <laughs> taking over. But it was entirely made by what? And this is fascinating. Yes. Yeah, the layers, you're right. The layers are very interesting. So the movie was called Morgan and it was released last year. So it's a, horror suspense sci-fi movie about bioengineering mm -hmm. and that's also happening so they had created morgan uh, this baby it was their third attempt and morgan has strange powers mm -hmm. okay 
So that's just the entertainment of it. Then the actual kicker was the trailer that I showed you was edited by IBM's Watson. So how it worked was uh, uh, Watson sampled a hundred trailers, suspense trailers. I don't like how we're giving these things names, but no, we mustn't personify them. But anyway, All right, the algorithm, IBM algorithm viewed and, and, and reviewed a hundred trailers of suspense movies. Mm. So where people's hearts would race, where the suspense thing, where the cliffhanger was, where the scary music uh, comes in, all of that kind of thing. And then essentially looked at the, the Morgan movie and extracted the best moments from that and knitted together a trailer. And again, to go back to the fear of what's going to happen to our jobs, the trailer was edited in 24 hours, whereas the normal editing process for a trailer normally takes between 10 and 30 days. Mm. So, you know, there you go. It's, it's quicker, it's more efficient, and it's, as you saw, it's a damn good trailer. The thing is that they're saying that creative jobs are safe, but that doesn't sound very safe to me. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Let's, let's wind down the conversation a little bit. Let's focus on you again, if we may. Just tell us very quickly, uh, the biggest mistake, and a story here would be great. Yes. The biggest mistake that you have made in your recent career. So, so Flux Trends is 10 years old. Yes. Biggest mistake that you've made in that 10-year period with Flux Trends, please. I think... And this is going to resonate with, with every small business owner because Flux is, a, is, is um, purposefully a small niche boutique entity and organization and company. So, so I don't want it to become this, this, this huge thing. And the things that I've learned, and I think one of the biggest mistakes I've learned is every company wants to scale up. And I completely underestimated what it takes to scale a business. Interesting. So to bolt on a new division. I thought, well, you know, we've kind of got the recipe going. We'll add on this new division and it will just kind of, it's like propagating a plant. It will just kind of grow from the mothership mm. and, and, and there. Um, when was this, by the way? About three years ago. Okay, and, so it's quite recent. And what I realized from there was actually scaling up and creating a new division within your own company. you actually almost starting from scratch mm. again. And it's not a quick fix and you can't ride on the mothership and, and how to do that. And that was really, really a big, a big lesson. Um, cause I thought it would be quick and it'd be happen and the scaling would be easy. And how wrong uh, could I be? It's uh, much did, more complicated. So did, did you get it? Did you get it wrong? Did the, the new limb wither away and die? The new limb did. Yeah. Uh, it was again another pivot, a necessary pivot saying, yeah. okay, that didn't really work out there. So let's pivot to this one. Mm. So the, the, the new trajectory is working out and it's more aligned with the, the kind of the core trajectory of where, where flux is going and, 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 and has been going. So it don't deviate too much, diversify, but give that diversification time to grow and mm. stand on its own feet because it takes a lot longer. Did, did you try and force it or did you feel like it was organic? I felt that it was organic, but it, it really was just you, you think it's going to be simple. Mm. And, and that's the biggest lesson I learned. It's, it's like starting a, a whole new little subsidiary company that you've got to start from scratch. Mm. And, and yeah, and it's not. Which then takes us to mergers and acquisitions. And it's a little wonder that that happens, I guess, because yes. at least you can get a full entity in. Yeah. And then it's just a little bit of integration. And when I say a little bit of integration, <laughs> yeah, everyone that does that kind of thing, the consultants out there are, are busy laughing, yes. <laughs> as, yeah, as you, you are as well. Okay, let's go back very quickly to the 20-year-old you, and let, we'll close with this question. Yeah. What would you say to you, knowing what you know now, what would you say to the 20-year-old young person you? Sure. I 
I still do it now, so it's a, it's a life lesson, is just when you can and even when you can't, make sure you travel. Mm. Travel, 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 and travel some more because that is just the lifeblood of, of what I do. And also just have the courage of your convictions. There's a reason why you have a gut feel and that gut talks to you. Trust that gut because it's something that will nag at you and we start second-guessing ourselves, self-doubting, all of those kind of things. And all the things that I've done in a very career is just take that leap. It's a, it's a scariest thing, but uh, know that uh, you know even if the parachute maybe might uh, not, there's there's, a, there's an emergency chute that mm. that will it will hold you somewhere and and you won't just crash to the ground. So um, and that's how good gut feelings are created by following your gut, failing a little bit, having to deploy yes. the emergency parachute, and then yeah. and then moving on. And you know to go back to to what our what we're really focusing on, and it's coming onto the trend radar big time now. And we we started these studies about two years ago. Is uh, the Gen Z mindset about failure, mm. um, it's quite a badge of honor and, and learn from it. You know, it, it's not the worst thing you can do because many people have failed. Travis Kalanick from Uber yeah. failed many times before that. And he's also not, uh, he's learning leadership lessons at the moment <laughs> as well. So, you know, so you, 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 yeah, you need to do that and don't be scared to pioneer and stick and stick your neck out. Well, Dion Cheng, Flux Trends founder. Uh, and I know you don't say CEO, but we'll, we'll call you CEO for now. But Observer, yes. thank you very, very much for being part of this conversation and being part of the collective that is our Future CEOs database of lessons and insights. Thank you no, very it's much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thanks very much.